This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. In today's episode, we remember Bruce Chatwin on what would have been his 80th birthday. Jonathan Chatwin joins me to talk about Bruce's life and work, and we have testimonials from Nicholas Shakespeare, Susanna Clapp, Colin Thubron, Sarah Wheeler, and Michael Meyer. So now, we remember Bruce Chatwin. Well, I'm here with Jonathan Chatwin, author of a monograph of Bruce Chatwin called Anywhere Out of the World. Uh, we're here to celebrate and to discuss the work and the life of the complicated figure, uh, Bruce Chatwin, and on what would be his 80th birthday this May 13th. Um, welcome to the podcast again. It's great to be back, Jeremy. So um, what are we doing here? What am I doing here is the title of one of his books. What are What are we doing here? Well, I hope we're keeping the flame alive a little bit. Uh, I spent a good few years, um, about six years, working on Bruce Chatwin. And at the time, he seemed to be fading slightly from from literary fashion. Obviously, he has he died in 1989, so it has been, what, 30 years, 31 years mm-hmm. since then. Um, and I think he was such a such a bright light in the 80s um in the british literary scene um and then there was a bit of a i think a correction perhaps uh you know over the last couple of decades um so i hope that we can continue to to bang the drum for what a remarkable and original writer he was uh, and perhaps remind people of some of that rare talent that he that he possessed i mean tom mashler who is his uh publisher um, Jonathan Cape, he always said of his of his kind of team of writers at Cape, and he had you know someone Rushdie and Martin Amis and Julian Barnes. Uh, he always thought Bruce was the the best of them, uh, and I think it's easy. He, he had such a um, as you say, a complicated and and uh, you know a life that was to many people the main interest, or perhaps has become the main interest that people have. That we forget, I think, what a wonderful prose stylist he was. So, yes, I'm hoping that we can we can bang the drum a little bit for for Bruce, and, and also, yes, yeah, spend a bit of time um, tracing some of the journeys that he made and thinking about him in the travel writing context. Very good, and we um, have special treat, I guess, in this episode because we do have some uh, commentary and testimonials on. Uh, on Bruce and his life and his work. So that will be good to hear. And we'll kind of put those in uh, at various points throughout the the talk today. When did you first encounter his work? So I I live in Birmingham uh, in England and um, I grew up here. And the house where I'm talking to you from today is about a mile and a half from the house where Bruce's cabinet of curiosities uh, was where he mm. he found that piece of brontosaurus skin that sent him off to, to Patagonia, or so the tale goes. And obviously, there's the coincidence of our shared surname, and, and the Chatwins are a family, a Birmingham family. 
Um, and so when I was a child, we had quite a few of his books um, on our bookshelves at home. I'm not convinced that my parents had actually read them, but I think they were intrigued <laughs> enough by the notion that there was this fairly famous author at the time who shared our, it's not particularly common uh, surname, um, that they bought a few of his books. And um, I remember picking up uh, the copy of the song lines, which I still I still have, and I have it in front of me here. Um, when I was about, I think, about nine years old, um, and obviously having that moment of thinking, oh, well, this this chap's got the same name as me. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my late teenage years that I read him, and I read the song lines first, and um, it had a, a profound influence on me at the time. And uh, I let, went, then went back in later life uh, as, a, as a graduate student to write a PhD thesis about him, and then um, I wrote the book that we're talking about a little bit today. So yeah, it was. It's a. I have a strange relationship, in some ways, because of course the first question is always, "Are you related?" Um, and I spent a long time fighting the temptation to discover the the connection that there was. I mean, um, and I, ha I have now sort of done a bit of digging around. We we are distant distant relatives, but I mean, as I say, the Chatwin name is a not particularly common name, so that's perhaps not very surprising. Um, I was drawn back to Birmingham in a way that he wasn't. I mean, he. To talk of him as a Birmingham writer would, I think, appall him really, because he he hated the city, um, and very rarely returned here. But I mean, that is what he was. He, his his family were from here. His father was solicitor in the city, provincial middle class, and it became. I mean, that that aspect of his background, his um, sense of provincialism, which wasn't helped by the fact that he didn't go up, up to Oxford as was planned for him um, when he was eighteen. I think did colour his personality and remain something that he didn't really like to talk very much about. Mm -hmm. But despite that, um, by all accounts, incredibly bright, uh, was able to kind of learn. He's an autodidact in, in many ways, able to learn whatever he wanted to learn at great, um, not just speed, but also um, at a great depth. Yeah, I mean, Salman Rushdie said um, that he was the most knowledgeable person um, he he knew uh, and and it certainly was true, not so much at school, I don't think, but when he began uh, his first job at Sotheby's and there was a rapid ascendancy so that by the time, you know, he was in his early 20s, he was he was running uh, departments at Sotheby's. I mean, Sotheby's in those days was not quite the global behemoth it is today, but it was a, a company like Brees in, in, in the ascendancy in that era. Um, and he he seemed to have an instinctive ability, as you say, to acquire knowledge very quickly. And that's partly the nature of the auction business, you know, having to um, very quickly get up to speed on a particular piece or a particular period um, and, and do your research in a, in, a, in a very intensive and fast way. Uh, and he was able to retain uh, information with a remarkable recall. Um, I mean, Patrick Leifermo talks about this too, and he was himself an autodidact who had um, a remarkable bank of cultural knowledge to draw upon. And it clearly was something that he had as an innate ability. I don't think there's any way you can kind of learn that. Um, and sometimes it, it's, it, I think readers find it off-putting, and, and certainly there were elements in his writing where his carefully cultivated sort of persona, it's very knowledgeable, you know, culturally knowledgeable, geographically knowledgeable, it can become a little perhaps 
grating. But uh, I don't think there's any dispute that he was, you know, he had an exceptional mind, um, leaning to one side his literary talents. I think he uh, he had proved that certainly in his days at Sotheby's and, and you know, the, the other aspects of his career that he that he had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also his literary knowledge seems to be to be vast too. Um, and I, I don't suppose we get that so much from in Patagonia, but if there are any doubts, uh, we we figure that out at the second half of the song lines, which hopefully we can get into, which is just kind of this kind of weird part of the book where, you know, there's so many diverse references, literary references, cultural references that just tell you how, I guess, well-read this guy was and how curious about the world he was. Yeah. And he was an unconventional reader in, in some ways in, in that he had a disdain for the conventional so he, you know, he talked about not having really read things like Austin or Dickens. Um, I don't think that was quite true, but he, he certainly liked to, um, <laughs> he, gra- he gravitated towards books that were perhaps a little bit more um, exotic. Um, I mean, he was great. His library is still extant in the house uh, that he lived in with, with, his, with his wife, Elizabeth. And it's a, a very large room um, filled with floor to ceiling bookshelves. And an incredibly diverse range of texts there, but he was drawn perhaps more towards European literature um, as inspiration um, than he was towards uh, English literature. I, w- I would say, um, and there's an element there again of, of perhaps a, a kind of slight pretension. But um, the Russian writers and the French writers of the 19th century were, were both touchstones for him. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you just mentioned there about uh, him. I guess pretending not to reread Austin and Dickens as being not true, and there's it seems that with with Bruce there was this very self conscious or self aware um, myth making uh, this image cultivation uh, that he wanted to build, and you know I definitely want to go into that because that's part of you know the intrigue of of the figure, um, if not also uh, the work. Um, can we? jump into your monograph of Chatwin anywhere out of the world first and um, uh, talk about, you know, the nature of the sources that we have about Chatwin, maybe the archive uh, in Oxford. Um, We can talk about this kind of enigmatic book, The Nomadic Alternative, which um, I didn't know about, um, and touch upon some of the the major themes that we see throughout his work. And then we can kind of jump in and, and start talking about those if that works for you sure so i mean the book that i wrote was um, very much focused on the uh, literary work that chatwin had done and to some extent it was an attempt to, to rebalance the discussion about him back towards his literary talents which which i think uh, are pretty profound instead after of, an, sorry instead, instead of, of focusing instead on of the his, figure Yes, exactly. Yeah, instead of um, the preoccupation that, that with with his with his biography and perhaps some of the more lurid parts of his life, mm-hmm. they have interest and they have bearing on the work too. But uh, my intention was really to try and um, you know, perhaps just swing the pendulum back the other way a little bit. Uh, and, and the thesis of the book is fairly straightforward in a way, exploring the idea which Chatwin was very open about that. All of his work is, to some extent, even his novels. I mean, he only wrote really two books that can be considered travel books, despite being thought of mainly as a travel writer. Um, but all of his books can be seen as uh, fundamentally preoccupied with 
the nature of human restlessness, which he, he saw as the sort of big question um, that he was trying to set out to solve. And the first version of his um, solution to this question is uh, a very um, baggy manuscript of a book called The Nomadic Alternative, which was never published. Um, it was commissioned um, by Jonathan Cape. Um, and Bree uh, spent a number of years working on this, essentially a text that was always doomed to failure for the very simple reason that um, it aspired to a sort of academic objectivity and seriousness, mm. which its argument didn't really sustain. I mean, its central argument was that, you know, once we were nomads, uh, nomadic life was peaceful. Uh, and our preoccupation with stories of travel in the present day and our innate restlessness is born of uh, genetic heritage as, as nomads. Um, and, and he spends 260 odd pages exploring that thesis. But it's a very personal philosophy, which he's trying to impose some sort of academic structure upon. Mm -hmm. And the book doesn't really sustain that. So um, unfortunately, when it was submitted and read by uh, the people at Cape, they realised pretty quickly this was, this was not going to be a goer in its present form. And it forms part of an archive of Chatwin's work, which it resides at the Bodleian Library um, in Oxford. Uh, it was there, it was embargoed for 20 years after his death. So when I saw it, which was in um, sort of the mid 2000s. Um, it was still very difficult to, to access, although now anyone who is is a member of the, of the Bodleian can see the archive. Um, and within within the archive, there's the manuscript of the Madic Alternative, and also a huge number of his notebooks, um, those famous moleskin notebooks that have been uh, amazingly lucrative for the company that uh, <laughs> about 15 years ago decided to resurrect the brand. Uh, so I spent a long time. Uh, looking through that manuscript and trying to um, take apart the argument that he put forward, um, seeing it really as a, as a foundational text for him um, in what he would do next, so the books that he would write subsequently. Um, and people have, have sort of said, oh, well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to, to publish The Nomadic Alternative? And I think it would be the worst thing you could possibly do in a way for his reputation, because it is almost the diametric opposite of all of the work that he would published subsequently. Uh, you know, he's known for this kind of crystalline, um, sparse prose, um, whereas the dramatic alternative is baggy, um, mm. very, very heavy and dense in its prose style. Um, it, it reads as a, as a text that never quite is sure of, of where it's going and, and as I say sort of where it where it sits in that in that uh in a dichotomy between the academic and the and the personal. That's interesting. Um you know you I haven't read the nomadic alternative obviously but I you in your book Anywhere Out of the World, uh your your monograph on 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 Chatwin's work, you do kind of quote the text at length. Um and as I was reading those sections, it reminded me of um it seems to be in 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 the, a book in the philosophical tradition. It reminded me of 18th century writing. It reminded me a little bit of Rousseau, um, and in, in, in its density, but also in its kind of spirit. If that if that makes sense, which is an interesting thing now that I think about it, because of you know what Rousseau says about civilization, <laughs> right, and mm -hmm. um, and kind of you know his his, his basic distrust that civilization is or can be a good thing um 
so you say restlessness here is a theme. Do we see any other themes here um, that might connect back to Rousseau? Not that to say that there is a connection, but any of those kind of similar themes? Yeah, I mean, that, that thread runs through through the book and then through his work, the idea that uh, settled civilization, uh, particularly in its modern form, is inherently bad for us as a result of its confinement. I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about at the moment, given how confined we, we all are. Right. But, um, you know, he, he says that the, the confinement of cities is, you know, that generates all sorts of negative consequences and a lot of our violent instincts, for example, he, he attributes to um, being stuck in in cities. Um, and yeah, the, he was always searching for a sort of model of the noble savage um, that he could he could draw on um, sort of peace. I mean, the, the, the trouble, of course, is that the term nomadism um, has a very, you know, pastoral nomadism has a very specific definition. Um, and, and actually what he wants to do is lump together everybody who travels. Um, and so you have chapters in The Nomadic Alternative about hunter-gatherers, chapters about nomads and chapters about other sorts of, you know, pilgrims and people who travel for other reasons. And he sort of lumps them all together, whereas, of course, their motivations are incredibly uh, diverse. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right in, in the sense that it feels like a text that could have been written um, in the in the 18th century or even before. And, you know, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is um, mm. one of the touchstones uh, for, for Chatwin in writing it, which is this absolutely enormous, very idiosyncratic exploration of, of the notion of melancholy. Um, and, and unfortunately, you just can't you can't get away with it <laughs> anymore. You know, it's it's a uh, those sorts of deeply personal philosophical um, treatises. Just you, you know, they don't they don't work in the modern era. Mm -hmm. But but he is a synthesis. I mean, that's that was his great talent, really, in a way, was that he was able to. You know, no academics are very narrowly focused. They they are you know siloed within whatever discipline they operate in. Um, whereas he wasn't interested in that. He wanted to draw on all sorts of different disciplines and 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 pull together disparate strands of research in service of his argument. Um, and of course, he will then return to this central idea of drawing on all these different sources um, in the song lines, as you mentioned in in that very. Uh, unusual from the notebooks section where he tries to um, present without really authorial comment some of the fruits of the, the, the work that he did um, towards the nomadic alternative. Mm -hmm. How much of his appeal do you think is part of the the mythology around Chatwin? I, I think a, a huge amount before we talk today. I, I reread um, Nicholas Shakespeare's wonderful biography of, of him and I just you read you read the story of his life, and I think I think Elizabeth said um, that you know he was lucky in every aspect of his life apart from his death, and I think that really comes across when you read Nicholas's biography because he was so fortunate in the life that he lived, and that he was always sort of at the right place at the right time, and um, you know to go up from. Uh, Marlborough um, School, which is where where he went to secondary school, and get a job at Sotheby's, just at the moment where Sotheby's was about to um, transform from a fairly small, you know, London um, auction house into this sort of global brand we know today, um, and then to go from that to 
um, this roving brief as an arts correspondent for the Sunday Times. You know, these these jobs just don't exist anymore. Getting sent off kind of on expenses to to travel around the world pursuing stories of his own uh, interest. And he was very fortunate um, in the in the time in which he lived, and you know, lots of other sort of socioeconomic ways. He was very fortunate as well, um, and. He lived a life which I think is the romance is is true. I mean, you know, there is obviously he has a self mythologizing character and he cultivates very carefully his image. Mm-hmm. But equally, the, the life he lived, um, you know, so there be Sunday Times um, in Patagonia, you know, the profound influence that had, um, and then his his glittering literary career, which would be very very hard to, to replicate um, today. I think even even successful young travel writers. I think there's just, there's just the publishing industry has changed too much um, for a life like Chatwin's to be to be feasible. I think anymore. Mm. Yeah, and of course, some of the appeal of of Chatwin is these fabulous stories that he tells. Right, uh, not just the stories that he tells, but the stories that others tell of him. Why don't we listen to a testimonial now from one of his friends, Colin Thubron? What I loved about Bruce was his fascination with ideas and the whole strangeness and astonishment of life. There was kind of raw vitality about him, which made life seem exciting and vibrant and larger when he was around. Uh, Somehow the horizons opened. He was very driven and obsessive. I mean, for months he'd go silent. You wouldn't have a clue what he was doing. Then suddenly you'd get a telephone call and he'd say, Colin, you know, when I was an anthropological student, I was always wondering you know, when the first fire was documented, um, when domestic fire came. Now I've just been with Bob Brain at the Svartskins Cave in South Africa and in the first cubic centimeters we excavated, there were some fragments of bone which looked charred. That level was close to two million years old. And this morning I had a letter in which Bob says the bones were definitely burnt. So I may have been at Svartskons on the day the world's earliest hearth was found. I held that bone in my hands. Then Don would go to the telephone, and you wouldn't hear again from him for months. At first, I think he wanted his writing to be like, as he described it to me, like Cartier Bresson snapshots, you know, one, 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 one after another, because this love of the pictorial he had. And one can feel this in his descriptive work, that fascination with the vivid image, um, often he thought picks out a particular um, attribute of somebody which encapsules and gives insight into the whole person, often something a little quirky. Um, but on the other hand, he could never resist a good story. And of course, the two aren't really compatible to be writing uh, exactly like Cartier on snapshots and involve uh, a, a narrative. But you find the two combine wonderfully in, in Patagonia. His own talk was full of stories, often quirky, rather outlandish ones. But there was also this passion always for revelatory ideas about the earliest fire or the origins of evil. You, you always felt Bruce might one day come back with the key to the mystery of life. How could you not miss him? That was great. You know... Bruce Chatwin's stories are great and fantastical. You know, I remember reading about uh, one of his stories about him going blind, uh, waking up one morning blind. Uh, there's another story, uh, I, I think it's in Granta, it's called The Bay, 
where he refers his meeting to a guy, a quirky figure with a mustache named uh, the Grand Chamberlain or something, uh, with whom he exchanges artifacts at Sotheby's, I believe. Just something about the stories uh, that he tells and the stories that he gets himself into that are just unbelievable and uh, yeah. fantastical. Yeah, and he was never, uh, you know, uh, I think there's, there's parts, I mean, that, that, the, the essay you're talking about where he talks about going blind and setting off to the Sudan and um, in the mid-1960s, uh, he always liked to cultivate the idea that he had undertaken sort of long, very challenging desert journeys and, you know, sort of Wolfrith Tessiger-esque had embedded himself amongst the, the nomads. And that wasn't really true, that, that he did make, you know, travels all over the world, but they tended to be relatively short trips and um, he wasn't, Sort of roughing it in, in quite that in quite the same way as as, as writers like Thesiger um, were, um, but he tended to parachute in. I mean, the songlines is a perfect example of this, where um, you know anthropologists throw up their hands about about that book, um, but and he spent very little time on the ground in Australia, really, given the complexity of his subject matter. But he wrote a book that has has been the best read book on Aboriginal Australia for the last 30 years. Um, and that, I think, irritates, understandably, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it speaks also to to the, the ability that he had to transform the raw material of stories into something that was very compelling for people. Yeah, that's interesting. There, There is a quote here that I wrote down. Um, Bruce uh, said, I'm more interested in story and storytelling than I am in traveling but stories come more easily to you when you are traveling, right? So it seems here that he's kind of acknowledging a little bit, uh, you, you know, the the ability to create stories and fictions, even if it's connected to some, like, real event. I think many people in, in travel writing open a book with the idea that everything that they're reading is absolutely true, right? And he's playing with that, I think, uh, a little bit. In the song lines, there's this central ethical issue which he never really wanted to confront in the book or or um, in conversations around it which is that he's dealing with sacred secret knowledge of a culture that is very much not his own and of a culture that he had a relatively superficial understanding of um, i mean there are people from outside aboriginal communities who study the song lines uh, and and the system of mythology around them, but they will always acknowledge how complex these ideas are and that it will take decades to sort of acquire um, an understanding of it that, that does it justice. The other problem was that he was drawing on a book um, called Songs of Central Australia by Ted Stralo. Um, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor and had grown up um, on a mission for Aboriginal Australians. Uh, so was sort of part of this community, but was was white. Um, and this book, and Stralo in general, was a controversial, it was a controversial book and he was a controversial figure. And that is never acknowledged in the book, or, or by Bruce, and he he took a an attitude that you know he wouldn't write the books that he does if he spent thirty years getting himself immersed in the field, mm. um, which is a real ethical problem. 
um, that is very hard to resolve. And it's a thorny issue because you can very easily end up feeling like the whole work is founded on some sort of exploitation by Bruce, that he, he used these people in the service of his wider argument. And it's actually quite difficult to counter that. Um, I think I'd say a, a couple of things, perhaps in, in his defence. The first is that he, in his work, did an enormous amount to bring to the world's attention. It, you know, the Song Lines was a, was a bestseller internationally. Um, a culture and a community that people uh, outside of Australia perhaps knew very little about. Um, so I don't think you can entirely dismiss that. And the second thing is, I think what he probably would have said, and I'm not sure whether this helps or hinders his case, but really that the song lines that he presents in the book aren't truly the Aboriginal song lines, because of course he didn't fully understand what they were. Um, <laughs> he saw in them a sort of poetic um, representation of some of the ideas that he had held for an awfully long time himself. Mm. So they get kind of co-opted or assimilated into his own personal version of this mythology, which he sees as a global phenomenon rather than just something that's specific to um, Aboriginal Australia. It's a question that has certainly had become the main focus of kind of academic inquiry into Chatwin's work. Um, and as with all such ethical questions of representation, it's very hard to square the circle and to um, to to acknowledge the flaws uh, and not in, end up entirely dismissing the person and the work. I think there's little doubt that if the book was to have been written now, um, the publishers would be much more wary um, of this sort of white man wades into a culture that he isn't part of um, and very selectively picks out bits that suit his own uh, idiosyncratic view of the world. Um, whether the book would be published at all is, is, is a question, but of course it does exist um, and it does have value and mm -hmm. we have to just try it as best we can to navigate these tricky ethical issues. I think more broadly it's worth pointing out um, that Bruce was deeply uninterested in politics um, and so I suspect, and again, this may be something that that condemns him as much as rescues him, um, that to an extent he was he was simply unaware and uninterested in um, those questions because what he cared about were the stories, um, and in particular in the song lines, he felt, you know, it was almost a, a kind of moment of euphoria when he discovered the songs of Central Australia um, and felt that they articulated something in in an understandable form that he had been trying to define himself for for an awfully long time. Mm. So as a result, uh, he was more than willing to overlook the fact that um, there was a, a hidden complexity there and also all sorts of ethical questions that he really did need to address and resolve before he, he waded into that subject matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Perhaps in 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 his 
travel books, right? The way that in which he kind of conveys those notions of restlessness and going against consumerist society and, and whatnot. Um, the best way in which he can do this is through fabrication or storytelling, right? Which is perhaps one of his chief preoccupations. And in fact, there's that famous story from Paul Theroux where, you know, he tells Bruce to, you know, you got to come clean, man. You got to come clean. And Bruce <laughs> replies, I don't believe in coming clean, which is insightful in many ways, but especially insightful in terms of uh, storytelling. And yeah, in many ways, of course, the, the two of them inhabit sort of polar polar opposite ends of, of the travel writing continuum, if you like, that Theroux's books are all about the, the lived experience, um, warts and all, and often there are a lot, lot, a lot of warts, right? You know, it's, it, it's, it's often quite, uh, you know, the, the grueling experience of travel is very, very present in Theroux's work. And in, in a way, I suppose that they're drawing on slightly different traditions, um, or they inhabit slightly different travel writing traditions. Um, and, and Chatwin is much more in a tradition of a writer who has a particular argument or sort of philosophical idea that they want to shape the material to to fit. Um, and you see it, I mean, he's not, Peter Mattiason's The Snow Leopard is another example of this um, from, from, from the same sort of era um, where the, the the journey becomes metaphorical in some way of some sort of transformation or some sort of wider philosophical point. Um, I think the, the problem for readers is unless you know an awful lot about his biography, it's very hard to delineate between fact and fiction. And that frustrates, I think, some readers. Um, and certainly there are moments that I chafe at. I mean, there's a bit in the song lines where he, um, they're out, out in the, in the, in the outback somewhere. And, um, the, in the, in the book, the Aborigines are all scared of snakes. And so they sleep on the roof of the land cruiser. Um, and Bruce sets himself up this, um, snake proof, uh, ground sheet that she sort of pegs up at the corners and then sleeps on the ground. And it's, and it's all, um, you know, presenting Bruce as a sort of fearless traveller. And, and actually, when uh, Nicholas Shakespeare went back and talked to the people who were with him then, actually, it was the complete opposite of that. that <laughs> uh, you know, Bruce had been terrified of snakes and had slept on the roof. You know, that's a bit upsetting as a, as a, you know, as a reader, because you think that's, that's not just a truth and a half. It's not a slight manipulation of the facts. It's a complete inversion of the facts, clearly done to sort of bolster the mythology of this character that... Uh, that's at the centre of the song lines. Um, but of course, it, if he had written a very straightforward factual travel account, as many people have, of course, of travelling through Australia or, or Patagonia, you know, th there's a reason that his books are those that, that people return to and have sold in their hundreds of thousands. And, and partly it is because he's so careful at crafting the narrative in the service of his, of his kind of literary ends. Mm. Well, let's uh, jump into it. Let's, uh, I guess, talk about his uh, book in Patagonia, uh, which very influential to many. You know, it was hard for me uh, to get into it. Um, I started reading it and I put it down. And in preparation for this conversation, I picked it back up again and forced myself to to read it. You know, the I I don't know why. It just sometimes you you like books and sometimes you don't. Um, 
but despite that, it's hugely influential. People love it, right? Um, we have some testimonials. I guess we, it's a good time to put them in um, on how important in Patagonia was uh, for not just readers, but for kind of the travel writing landscape. So now we'll play two back-to-back testimonials from the travel writers Sarah Wheeler and Michael Meyer. In my grandmother's dining room, there was a glass-fronted cabinet, and in the cabinet, a piece of skin. A first line that has launched a thousand others, though none with the ocean-going allure of Chatwins. This, I think, was his legacy, or part of it. With that line, Chatwin set up his 1977 volume, In Patagonia, as a quest. A quest for a brontosaurus, the skin of which his grandmother's cousin, Charlie Millwood, had found in a prison of ice in Chilean Patagonia. Chatwin found the perfect vehicle for a travel book, the search, the hunt, the pursuit. And he showed the reader, as well as the aspiring writer, that it doesn't matter if the quarry evades detection. It doesn't even matter if the glass-fronted cabinet never existed. Chatwin showed for all time that it is the story that counts. So when someone asks me how to write a travel book, my short answer is to tell them what I did, which was to reread and reread and reread the opening pages of In Patagonia, a book I just absolutely love because it's, it's strange it's weird, it's incredibly knowing, and yet, despite its title and what the reader might expect when he or she opens to the front page, the book doesn't begin in South America. Instead, it begins in a grandmother's dining room where a young boy stares at a reddish-brown piece of skin covered in coarse hair. What's that, he asks, and he's told that it's a piece of brontosaurus, and the boy believes it. The boy, of course, is Chatwin, and he learns that this brontosaurus lived in a place called Patagonia, where it had fallen into a glacier and died within a prison of blue ice. Chatwin's always great with colors. The brontosaurus had laid unseen, he imagines, until the boy's shipwreck relative accidentally found the creature's remains and mailed a bit of his discovery to a London house, where to the boy it becomes a beacon, calling him to a faraway land named Patagonia. Even after he's mocked at school for actually believing that this piece of skin had come from a dinosaur. Later, he learns that it's probably from a giant sloth. But by then, he has other concerns. His teachers are preparing him and his classmates for the coming war with the Soviets. Patagonia, the place that once summoned the boy for adventure, now looks to him like a refuge from nuclear winter. And then this first section of the book ends with Stalin's death and the seeming end of the Cold War. But there's a confession from our narrator who adds, I continue to hold Patagonia in reserve. We're only up to page three in the book and look at the distance the writer has covered. There's character, there's setting, there's an arc of innocence to experience. And this is all narrated in that warm voice, the opposite of the know-it-all bore. Chatwin's voice is intimate and vulnerable and curious. You know, he sounds like the best of travel companions. Now turn the page. There's a huge leap again. Chatwin writes, The history of Buenos Aires is written in its telephone directory. 
And then he shares some entries without commentary, trusting that the reader's intelligent enough to know that these names are white Russian and Nazi German and aristocratic Italian. They tell, Chatwin says, a story of exile, disillusion, and anxiety behind lace curtains. And then, without pause, he continues, It was lovely summery weather the week I was there. I love this abrupt transition. The curtain goes up, and there's our narrator at center stage. He's realized his dream. We know nothing of his quitting his job at Sotheby's or abandoning a book project or finances or his love life or even of the journey to Argentina itself. The writer has spared us, in other words, the view from the window as his plane descended. To his story of Patagonia, these details aren't nearly as important or as interesting to the reader as that piece of skin and the grip that a place can put on us long before we are free to travel on our own. I've read and taught this book many times, and each time my reaction and that of a curious reader is the same. We ask ourselves, where have I always longed to travel? And what am I waiting for? Or to invoke another great book of Bruce's, what am I doing here? I think it's easy to forget how influential and original in Patagonia was when it arrived on the literary scene in 1977. Um, it was a work that was shaped to a very specific thesis. Um, Patagonia was a resonant metaphor for Chatwin um, of the restlessness that he, he'd been exploring in the nomadic alternative in that it was a place that had attracted an enormous number of, of emigres from around the world, uh, particularly Europe, who had come in search of an escape from the privations of, of life at home. Mm. Very often found when they got to Patagonia that it didn't quite meet their expectations um, and that many of the characters he meets express a sense of feeling being trapped in uh, this this homeland. And tied in with that is the notion of the quest, which his characters are engaged on, of course, as well, the quest for um, a better life, the quest for the golden land, if you like. Um, and Bruce is on a quest as well, and his quest is to go back to the cave where this piece of brontosaurus um, from his grandmother's cabinet was found. Um, and he sort of moves around in a fairly unfocused way for much of the book. The transitions between the different locations are sometimes quite hard to follow. But his ultimate destination is intended to be this cave at Last Hope Sound. Um, and when he gets there, of course, he doesn't find the object of his quest. Um, the skin is long gone. What he finds instead is a load of mylodon dung. And then the book uh, carries on beyond this narrative point and sort of subverting the idea of the travel log and having any sort of fixed ending and it ends with him. Mm -hmm. uh, still in motion uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a boat, listening to a, a, a man play at La Mer on the piano. Um, and so he combines these two kind of central ideas that, it, that are adopted from the nomadic alternative, the idea of the quest, which is central to his thesis in that book um, as a, one of the archetypal forms 
um, of, of human storytelling, which embody the journey that we would have taken in the past, full of risk and adventure. Along with his central trope of human restlessness, the idea that we are never satisfied where we are. Right. Um, and so the conceit of the skin and the place of Patagonia itself resonantly expressed for him both of those ideas. So it's a heavily shaped, heavily worked book, not least because when it arrived at Jonathan Cape, um, the manuscript was actually quite loose and baggy and um, Susanna Clapp, who edited it, stripped out, along with Bruce, um, about a third of the of the of the book um, to make it a much shorter book with these short episodic sections um, and really focused it focused it in on its narrative purpose a little bit more he was very lucky to have that of course I think most publishers today taking what was the, the second manuscript in a way that he'd submitted the first being the nomadic alternative which was unpublishable the second mm -hmm. you know in patagonia being a book that needed a, a lot of line by line editing um i think a lot of publishers today would say well, sort of thanks but but no thanks um but he was lucky to have um the publisher that he did and very lucky to have the editor he did in in mm -hmm. susanna clapp and together they shaped it into this book um and it was just i think what the publisher and Susanna and then readers saw in it was this um, incredible new original voice um, in travel writing and somebody who was very willing to discard um, some of the, the old conventions of the genre. Well, let's talk about the, the song lines. Um, it pulled me in, you know, a lot better than in Patagonia did. It's a book where he goes to Australia, right? Where he is kind of searching for knowledge on these dreaming tracks or what are they in aboriginal culture so i mean the song lines are uh incredibly difficult to define um and have been the subject of study you know anthropological study um for people you know experts in the field and bruce's interpretation of them is in the service of his his overarching idea about the nature of human restlessness and the idea that actually for him, these song lines sort of spread across the world. Um, it's quite a, quite a grand thesis he comes up with, but I'll read you what he wrote in the nomadic alternative as a definition of these song lines or dreaming tracks as they're sometimes known. And this is what he writes all over Australia zigzagged the mythical tracks of the ancient ancestors who had wandered about the subcontinent in the dream time, creating topographical features as they went. One could only see the tracks if one knew they were there. To an outsider, they were invisible. And today, these untrodden paths pass through sheep stations, cities, rocket ranges planted by white men. An Aboriginal could read a track as he memorised a song. He knew each crag, totemic tree, river crossing, waterhole, or bend in the way in due succession. He could find his way along the track, even if he had never travelled that way before. The paths of the ancestors meandered from coast to coast through territories of people whose language and customs he could not necessarily understand. And so that's the definition that he gives in uh, The Nomadic Alternative and is um, closely aligned to the way that he presents them in the songlines. But as I say, in the songlines, he extrapolates out from the 
sort of singular data point he has in uh, Aboriginal songlines to assert that these um, stories of travel, which are embedded in the landscape, sort of crisscross the globe and um, his allusions to classical mythology uh, and, and obvious metamorphoses are all um, part of this totalizing philosophy, which of course holds, you know, academically no water, but is a very romantic and, and grand idea. And he, he felt in the song lines that he'd found a, a resonant metaphor for some of the ideas that he'd been trying to express um, certainly in the romantic alternative and, and then all the way through his his subsequent creative work um, and he goes on a journey to explore this idea um, and the book is to a great extent made up of a journey he takes with a, a lightly fictionalized character who he did really meet who is a, an expert on aboriginal culture uh, and they have conversations back and forth about the notion of what the song lines are and and what they represent about sort of human consciousness um and then that segues into a long section towards the end of the book um called from the notebooks where he is sort of settled in um in a caravan somewhere in the middle of nowhere in australia and he sort of sets himself up at his desk in this caravan and sets out his notebooks uh, and he and then begins this very fragmentary trawl through all of the research that he had done over, well, certainly the period he was writing The Nomadic Alternative, but over the last sort of 25 years, really. It's highly fabricated in the sense that, of course, he, he didn't put it together in situ as, as he claims in the in the book. It was put together when he was back at home in Oxfordshire and actually was very ill. And part of the reason that the from the notebook section takes the form that it does is because he was by this point very sick with the disease that would ultimately kill him. Um, but it's one of those things that people either really like or or really don't. Um, oh, I loved it. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. I mean, there was flashes of insight. Uh, you know, every, I think it begins with him talking, as you said, like his note. He's he's discussing his moleskin notebooks and he tells the story <laughs> of uh, the note, the, the moleskin manufacturer dying and, you know, how many he bought and how he loved these books. And then, you know, we, we get a glimpse of the things that are con contained in those books and has very little to do with the narrative. If anybody has read the uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, arcades project, it reads kind of like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, bits and pieces of ideas pulled together from here and there and but just wonderful wonderful uh, sections and of course the the main narrative of him and uh, Arkady and the other figures he meets in Australia come back I remember reading it for the first time and 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 yeah it's it's very light touch compared to the nomadic alternative in the sense that that book was was didactic and, and was trying to sort of was fr frame a you know a, a linear academic argument. Whereas um, the reason I think from a notebook section is is effective is because he doesn't really try and tie any of it together um, beyond the sort of slightly philosophical conversations that he and Arkady have had beforehand. Um, they just exist as fragments that over course of the I don't know how many pages it is, 40, 50 pages maybe, um, that they're scattered over, sort of build gradually towards 
a sense of um, both the, the writer, but also this this notion of um, that life is better when lived on foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's a good summary of, of the argument in a conversation that he had uh, with Michael Ignatieff. Um, and so I'll just read that out because I think it helps you okay. um, understand what he's getting at in the, the, the book as a whole, but the from the notebook section. Um, so uh, Ignatieff says, uh, let me see if I understand this. Human beings originate on the desert plains of Africa three million years ago, and they gradually acquire a set of instinctual behaviours that enable them to survive on the grasslands and vanquish their predators. And as they acquire a set of instinctual nomadic patterns of behaviour, they also acquire a meaning system, a set of myths which are imprinted on the brain over millions of years. And these are the story patterns that keep recurring even in the modern day. Um, and and Bruce agrees agrees with all of that. Um, so that was that was part of what he was um, trying to trying to achieve was it was expressing that complex argument in a much lighter way. Um, and I like uh, Nicholas Shakespeare uh, has this lovely phrase about it, that he it's almost like he blasted oxygen through the nomadic alternative, the work that he'd done previously on it. Um, because in the end, you know, I have trouble summarising exactly what his philosophical impetus was in the song lines but that's intentional on his part in a way doesn't ever try and draw it down to a totalizing theory he just leaves you with this impression that you know life is better lived on the on the hoof and we are hardwired for travel i mean that's his point really is that the because of our nomadic heritage we we carry in us some sort of instinctive um uh traveling instinct um which if you settle is comes out through stories of travel. So the reason we write stories of travel is because we can't travel. Um, you know, we have to travel vicariously because we can't travel for real. Um, but it's, it's the other thing it does, of course, is it burnishes this mythology of the author because many of the fragments in the, from the notebook section are drawn from his own personal experience and he, and he's, and he's off all over the world. I mean, they're drawn from, um, you know, tens of different countries um, and giving a giving an impression of, of a person, a character, the I named Bruce in the novel, who is, uh, you know, unimaginably cultured and knowledgeable and experienced. Um, and of course, that is both incredibly appealing and I think is central to um, the book's appeal and, and his appeal, but also it's a it's a myth i mean he it's it's constructed so um and of course that's that's the 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 from the notebook section feels very fragmentary and loosely put together but it was carefully thought through to both embody that intellectual idea but also um convey this sense of of the protagonist um as this sort of mythical mythical figure apparently his uh last book Utz. Apparently, this is also a um, very wonderful short short book that talks about similar themes of restlessness and about the accumulation of things and consumerism and materialism. Can we um, talk about Utz, its impact, and um, how that might kind of fit in with the, the larger framework of his philosophy of life, I guess, restlessness? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning as well um, on the Black Hill, which was the novel right. that prece- preceded the Songlines, um, which is set on the Welsh borders, uh, a landscape that Prince considered to be sort of his spiritual home in many ways, um, and that he returned to time and time again about a, a, a twin brothers who who farm a, a plot of land up on the um, on, on the Black Mountains there. I mean, in both on the Black Hill and, and I, I mean, I, I feel bad if we don't mention that he did write a book in between in Patagonia and on the Black Hill called The Viceroy of Huida, which is, still remains the least read of his books um, about the uh, slave trader Francisco Manuel de Silva. Mm. Um, it's quite, quite, a, quite a hard, brutal book in, in many ways. But again, it embodies many of the ideas of restlessness that, that he is so preoccupied so yes, after the song lines, um, he writes this very short novel, which is nominated for the Booker Prize called Lutz. Um, and it continues in a way on from the end of the song lines, because at the end of the song lines, there's this moment of sort of romantic union um, between, not between uh, Bruce and anyone, but between two of the other characters in the in the, I, I hesitated then to know what to call the song lines. I think novel is in some way safer but perhaps not quite accurate um and this idea that these two people have found one another and that um sort of uh settled existence maybe with with somebody you you felt deeply about wasn't quite so bad as it, he seemed to think it was earlier in his life and work that's continued in in Utz to some extent now Utz is a story of a um collector of mice and porcelain, um, who lives in Prague, um, and is—it's a very tricksy book in many ways because it has a very unreliable first-person narrator who, again, is seems to be some sort of stand-in for the author. Um, and as with all his books, even even his novels were drawn from um, his lived experience. Um, on the Black Hill was based on farming brothers that he knew and spent time with, um, Viceroy of Weida, he spent time in Benin, um, although had to leave after a, a military coup um, sort of forced him out. Um, and it's, you know, it was drawn on a story of somebody, a real life collector, obsessive collector of, of, of porcelain. Um, and it's an interrogation of the, uh, of the limitations that collection impose on your life and, the, the, the psychological motivations behind collecting objects of great value and beauty, um, and ultimately whether or not real life is a substitute for these objects. Um, and we never quite know where we stand with those questions because the narrator is, as I say, a fundamentally unreliable. I actually knew very little of of Utz himself, he tells us during the course of the narrative, but it embodied, we've already mentioned this tension that, that Bruce had in his real life between um, collecting beautiful things. And he, and he had some, you know, wonderful um, collections of very unusual art and was always fascinated by that. The, the cabinet of curiosities comes back and back. Mm. Um, the, the, in it, he has these little God boxes that he made, um, which again, sort of little cabinets full of interesting things that he found. Um, so that's a recurrent trope in his, in his life. Um, 
and yes, that that idea of is it better to to shed all material possessions and travel light, um, or is you know, or is there value in um, the aesthetic beauty of objects? Um, that the book very much interrogates that. And as I say, then at the end of his life, whilst he was ill, he was compulsively trying to put together a collection and there's stories of him um, in the grips of a kind of mania being wheeled from dealer to dealer in London, um, sort of writing checks he couldn't possibly cash to um, buy these beautiful objects. Um, it was a kind of way of shoring up against mortality, I suppose, for him at, at that point. Um, and so he becomes almost like the character of Utz in his novel, Mm-hmm. Um, in, 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 the, in the period before he dies. Was this written during that period? I mean, he was ill for quite a long time. So the song lines um, was, was composed when, whilst he was ill. Um, and, you know, it was the mid 1980s and uh, he, he died of AIDS um, and had had relationships with men throughout his life, um, though, he was, though he was married. Um, and it was at that point not widely understood. Um, uh, and Brees, ever the mythomane, really didn't want to confront the reality of, of that being what he had. And it took, I mean, it, it took a while to figure it out. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a straightforward diagnosis, but he would, he would sort of talk about how he'd caught uh, some sort of of fungal infection from eating a thousand-year-old egg in China, or um, you know, all these sort of mythological <laughs> stories about why he was ill, and and um, you know, I suppose mortality is the great leveler, isn't it? And in the end, he couldn't he couldn't escape, he couldn't burnish that narrative. Um, you know, he became iller and iller. So he was writing the tail end of the songlines, and then whilst he was whilst he was quite ill. Um, and I mean, Elizabeth talks about him sitting at the kitchen table at the house in Oxfordshire and writing the, 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 the song lines and, you know, blankets wrapped around him feverish and her saying, you know, you really, you really can't carry on like this. And, and him saying, you know, I'm, I'm a trooper. I'm going to finish this book. Um, and, and he talked about the books he wanted to write afterwards as well. And I think that's the great sadness in a way of, of he, he died um, at 48 and had only really had a decade of his literary career, you know, the, in Patagonia had been published in 1977 and he died in 1989. So it was, it was a fairly short, uh, literary career that he had, um, and, and produced, you know, five books, uh, um, plus what am I doing here, which is a sort of compilation of, of work, um, in that time. Um, but had plans to write a quite expansive, long novel called Lydia Livingston um, and had a, uh, ideas about a book about healing called The Sons of Thunder. Um, and so we only ever got to see, you know, phase one of, of his literary life. And I think that's the great tragedy. And I, I, I think that idea that I mentioned earlier that he was lucky in every way in his life, apart from in his, in his death, is, is really is really true. Um, it's, you know, 48 is, is, is no age. Um, and I think those people who knew him much better than I, I mean, I know I've, I'm too young to have, to have met him and, uh, you know, my experience of his life and work is, is purely through his words on the page and, and meeting some people who he did know, but they talk about, you know, his innate talent and how wonderful it would have been to have seen 
more of his writing. Let's hear from Nicholas Shakespeare, who in 1999 published a biography of Bruce Chatwin. Bruce Chatwin at 80. I can still remember my shock when I heard that Bruce Chatwin had died. It was Wednesday, the 18th of January, 1989. I was 31, and like many who had known or read him, I felt a grief out of all proportion to my expectation. He died young, but not so young as most people think. At 48, he had outlived many of his influences, Robert Louis Stevenson, T.E. Lawrence, Anton Chekhov, Robert Byron, Ossip Mandelstam. Had he lived, he might have grown to resemble Samuel Taylor Coleridge, or his own description of Klaus Kinski playing the Viceroy of Weida, a sexagenarian all in white with a mane of yellow hair, and behaved, perhaps, at 80, like Charles Millwood the sailor, home from the sea. Charlie the pioneer, with his restlessness gone, pottering round his garden, the elms near Paynton. Yet few of his friends could picture an elderly Chatwin. I have great difficulty imagining him as an old man, said the art critic Robert Hughes. I think he would have been very crabby. Bruce's dense, intense, short life had a preordained and mythic quality. Great people have an inbuilt instinct about how long they're going to live, said the Australian poet Pam Bell, with whom he stayed while researching the songlines. A sort of rhythm to the way they rule their life. This explained the disciplined economy of his writing his manic behaviour, his impatient appetite for experience. With characteristic timing, Bruce died on the eve of the transformation of Central Europe, bringing down the barriers of the old and new worlds. Missing would be his dispatches from the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain, Prague and the Velvet Revolution, the Twin Towers, the invasion of Iraq, the coming of Donald Trump and Brexit. He died too before the revolution in information technology. He hated computers, but he was a precursor of the internet, a connective superhighway without boundaries and with instant access to different cultures. He was a storyteller of bracing prose, at once glass-clear and dense, who offered a brand new way of representing travelling. And he held out in his six books the possibility of something wonderful and unifying, inundating us with information, but also with the promise that we will one day get to the root of it. As his friend Robin Davidson said, he posed questions that we all want answered and perhaps gave the illusion that they were answerable. You always felt with Bruce, said the travel writer Colin Thubron, that he was capable of coming back with the key to everything. He was a storyteller first, who set free other writers and taught them not to be tamed by conventional boundaries. I've always loved telling stories, he told Thubron. Everyone says, are you writing a novel? No, I'm writing a story, and I do rather insist that things must be called stories. I don't quite know the meaning of the word novel. And in telling stories, he didn't much care if they were true, only if they were good. For Bruce, a good story was also, in a real sense, a true story. I like to say that he didn't tell a half-truth, but a truth and a half. In his memoir, Anecdotage, Gregor Retsori asked this question of Bruce. What would his life's work have looked like if he hadn't died in his forties after Utz, but had gone on living and writing until the blissful age of eighty? Salman Rushdie felt that Bruce had only just begun. 
We don't have his developed books, the books that might have come out of falling in love with his wife. We saw only the first act. He was just creating himself into the person he'd be happy to be. Out of all the people he'd experimented being, he quite liked being the writer, Bruce Chatwin. 31 years on, I still miss him. We'll end this episode with a statement from Susanna Clapp, who worked with Bruce Chatwin at his publisher, Jonathan Cape. She also wrote a book about Bruce Chatwin called With Chatwin, Portrait of a Writer. I've been thinking about Bruce a lot recently anyway, because in one of those strange looping um, tricks of, of fate, which he would have responded to, I think, um, there's been much talk of viruses caused by strange creatures in Eastern markets. And of course, when Bruce announced that he was ill, um, he talked about a malady caused by Chinese eggs. He talked about a visit to the Hong Kong bird market. He talked about an illness caused by a bat in a cave. These things were mocked at at the time, um, partly because people felt that it was a disguise of his. And indeed, he was not somebody to approach the truth other than obliquely um, or metaphorically. But actually, of course, like so much of what he said, what seemed to be fabulous now seems rather visionary and true. It doesn't look any longer look so improbable. And that, I suppose, is one of the many things that he did give us, me, people who admired his work and enjoyed being with him. Uh, my way of getting to know him was in 79 I met him when I was working as a young publisher. Well, that's rather too grand for what I was doing. I was a reader employed at Jonathan Cape, um, which was an extremely interesting but not particularly elevated post. And I was given to read a huge manuscript, which was actually, it was by Bruce, it was a version of his never quite to be published in its original form, Nomad Manuscript. It was about Patagonia. It was rambling. It was vivid. It was extraordinary. Extraordinary because it was a travel book in a new way, or certainly new to me, but I think new to everybody, in as much as it, it combined so many categories of descriptions of individuals, descriptions of landscape in the most painterly way, and the palette of that book with its sepias, its rose tints, its different varieties of greens, its sapphires, its turquoises, and so on, is extraordinary in itself. And then in its preoccupations about um, primitive man, overarching mythology, about communities that he had discovered, uh, not least the Welsh-speaking community in Patagonia. In fact, it's a book that turned out to presage most of the um, themes that he wrote about subsequently in his books, in his novels, uh, novels and non-fiction books, the Welsh collectors, um, archaeologists, you can see um, so much of Utz, the song lines um, on the Black Hill there. And it was a marvellous read. It was extraordinary, not like anything I'd read before. And I wrote a report saying that 
But I also said, the trouble is, it doesn't quite work at the moment. It's absolutely enormous, and you don't feel the urge to turn from page to page. It doesn't have a, have a dynamic. There's, there's perhaps too much of it. Can we make this work? Well, the answer was that uh, the person running Cape that time, publisher called Tom Mashler, who was very responsive to Bruce's work, said, well, let's try. And he put me to work with Bruce. So over the summer, I spent a period of, I can't remember how long it was, but it was several weeks, seeing Bruce daily, looking at this manuscript and trying, in a sense, to condense it, to give it um to give it an, an urge, an, uh, an impulse. Uh, in other words, really, to make the book cohesive in form and sentences. There were short sentences, short chapters, and the book was short. We ended by cutting um, between about a quarter and a third of the manuscript. I know that because I looked at the manuscript since in the Bodleian, and I can see my anxious sums in the margin. It was quite a task. Bruce was fantastically responsive. He rather enjoyed cutting. The trouble was, as he enjoyed cutting, I would I would look at the manuscript simultaneously, and I would propose something. He would say, "I'll think about it. Go away." He'd hardly ever say no. By the way, he'd come back the next morning saying, "Yeah, I think we can. I can do this." But he'd often come back with another chapter as well, so that it was a sort of surging and ebbing tide all the time. This was part of the time down in my tiny pokey room um, in the basement of Jonathan Cape, rather sort of dank little room next to the ladies' lab, uh, and sometimes in a grander place, which was owned by his friend, the art dealer, Kasmin, who lived um, near Regent's Park. So we had this scrubby little room and a sort of ex-ballroom, I think it was, a large white room. And it was very exciting. I have to say, the first time I ever saw Bruce, it was in that scrubby little room. He came in walking as if he was going to walk straight through the room and out of the window with a tremendous sense of sort of gushing energy with his knapsack, the famous knapsack, which he had specially made with lots of different compartments in it so that he could have, when he was traveling, half a bottle of champagne, so he said, and a tin of sardines. And he also had, at that point, um, an edition of Sidney Smith's um, The Cleric's Letters, slightly surprisingly, and less surprisingly, a copy in French of Blaise Sondra. Anyway, we worked together. It came out, and um, that was his first book. Subsequently, I worked a little on his second book, The Viceroy of Weeder, which was he found much harder going. It dealt with a very dark subject, and it spoke to some extent about a dark place in his life. And it, he wrote it in an entirely different way. In Patagonia, was needed to be cut. It, it was full of um, wonderful excesses, not so much of style, but of, of little loops and intricacies and byways. And although that was part of the point of the book, that it didn't have an absolutely sort of steady, dogged, foot-after-foot pace, there was a decision to be made editorially between what was an adornment and what was an exciting excursion and what was simply an excrescence and something which actually bewildered you. 
uh, Viceroy's Reader, his second book, was completely different because he, he wrote it from the beginning in a very compacted way. And he had great difficulty writing it. I remember going to see him in his the small white room which he'd rented uh, in a place called Albany in Piccadilly in central London. Uh, and uh, him sitting up against the wall, completely white-faced, just blocked. Um, it was one of those sort of awful, difficult, writerly moments. Was it going to work? In the end, it did. Uh, like so many of his books, it could almost have been written in contradistinction to the one that came before. Much darker, much shorter, much more compressed. That was the first of many white rooms in which I saw Bruce. And I think that thinking of his rooms, as I did when I was writing my book about him um, some time ago, uh, brought me very close and brings one very close to the way he did think because he was a visually impelled person, much as anything. He worked, of course, for some time as a young man in Sotheby's and uh, where he had both a tremendous urge towards some of the works of art, not least the antiquities, and also a recoil from the financial wheeling and dealing, although he wasn't bad at some of that either. Uh, but anyway, his, his rooms always had one or two really striking things in them, not always um, tremendously, obviously, traditional works of art, what he liked was art which didn't have apparent artists, as he liked architecture which didn't necessarily have architects. He liked things that he found, um, and that's very apparent in his book of the book of photographs that um, David King designed um, towards the end of his his life, where you have these very vivid pictures which close up could look like the Roscoe's thing, um, but Roscoe in a very good mood because the colours are, are very bright, slabs of colour, but then turn out to be the gate or, of, of, um, or, or a corrugated iron hut painted very brightly in South America or, or Africa. Anyway, in, within the, I remember uh, a room he had in Eaton Place, a grand bit of uh, central London, tiny flat, which he had designed by a minimalist art architect called John Pawson, so that everything was concealed. You couldn't see a single book because the, the, he'd asked for the books to be concealed behind a white wall. But what you did see were two or three extraordinary things. Um, there was the King of Hawaii's bedsheet, Actually, I can't remember exactly which rooms these were in, but the rooms within these rooms, you almost always saw what two or three of these things. The King of Hawaii's bedsheet, which was an enormous canvas that he'd bought in a sale, I think at Christie's, it might have been at Sotheby's, I can't remember, years before. I think carried it back on his bike, but maybe not, which was like a, an early Matisse with slightly apricot-colored with these little leaping figures of fish. Then there was something that looked like uh, a vivid abstract painting, great blocks of saffron yellow and turquoise blue. It was actually a fourth century Peruvian feather 
item. I can't remember now whether it was a cape or not. And then there was also something much more humble, but nevertheless, which was very, as one would say, as people did say, Brucey, which was a page from um, a catalogue of brushes. And it was a page of toothbrushes, different kinds of toothbrushes, stalking along like little soldiers. You suddenly, he made you look at things taken out of context and see how elegant they were, or how striking they were, how unusual they were. He loved things which were had a, a use. He loved things which were, he loved works of art which weren't traditionally called works of art. Another thing he had was a beautiful um, tray, like a giant sieve shaded in rose and slightly other pink colors that he'd bought in an Istanbul fish market. He had it pushed up on the top of a cupboard somewhere, but otherwise it could have been displayed. So this to me took me, it took me into the center of, a, of his aesthetic. And even now, I, when I go into places, I suddenly feel, ah, oh, Bruce has taught me to see this. Uh, that was one of his gifts, to actually make you look at things differently. Um, there were other gifts as well, of course. He had these extraordinary enthusiasms, and he was a great talker, full of tremendous riffs. He had a, a famous riff on red. Red, he'd suddenly say. He wanted to write about it, and he would go off um, into a million tangents about how red was used by bullfighters, by Uruguayan butchers, by the Bonnet Rouge. He'd seen it on a Buddhist scarf, how central it was. It was mainly his aesthetic I, I wanted to talk about because I think that's so central. And it, it was one of those things where um, a writer can actually change the way, he certainly changed the way I looked at things. I mean, it was wonderful working with him. And it wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't interested in music and literature and so on. But the, the visual scene was absolutely dominant with him. And I think most, most of his, his friends and admirers would say that. He... There were a couple of interesting things to me. Oh, I mean, one one that was talking about his 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 liking of things that were found rather than curated, as it were. He had sudden enthusiasms, for example, for corrugated iron huts. He went on a special journey to, in Wales with his friend David King, who was a wonderful designer who'd met on the Sunday Times, looking for these old um, huts that were built as um, shelters in the Second World War, now half buried. I should think there are hardly any of them now, but I can see them myself, um, hemispherical, corrugated iron. He was fascinated by those. He was fascinated by things made of wood. He was fascinated by the plain simplicity of certain bell towers that you find in Wales and England. He wrote about some of that, or he's suggested some of that in the on the black hill which coincidentally i think can be read as sort of semi-autobiography the two twins about whom he wrote and whom he to some extent modeled on people that he had actually met while staying in wales could also be seen without too much heavy sort of freudian analysis as being two elements of bruce himself Anyway, crucial to him in turning him into a writer was a figure who adored Bruce um, and who was a, a friend of mine called Francis Wyndham, 
who died a couple of years ago, a very wonderful writer himself, who ran for Times, a Sunday Times magazine, where Bruce turned up originally to advise on design, uh, but turned out to be tremendously energetic in providing ideas. He said, why not, my, let's have a piece about Madeleine, uh, Madeleine Vianney, who was the woman who invented the, the, the bias cut, uh, lived in, in, in Paris. Uh, let's have a piece about Eileen Ager. Um, let's, uh, sorry, uh, not Eileen Ager. Sorry, let's have a piece about Eileen Gray. Um, let's have a piece about George, George Kostakis, who Bruce delighted him because he was a, a tremendous collector, a Greek, a Greek in origin, who managed to collect in, in the Soviet Union. It was this combination, this paradox of, of, of capitalism and, and um, communism, which which so interested him. Anyway, he kept proposing these these subjects, and Francis Wyndham turned to him and said, "Why don't you write about them?" And he did to wonderful effect. And I think what's so interesting about his pieces is both the electricity of their subject matter, and also the compactness and the crispness of his description, which I think relies very much or, or is um, fueled very much by the, the work that he did in Sotheby's as a cataloger. He learned how to describe things with, with great precision to mount up these phrases which um, summoned up a piece without a lot of loose evocation. It was very exact. I mean, for all that Bruce was taxed by um, people for telling fibs or exaggerating, and he certainly wouldn't have denied that himself. I mean, he said, I once counted up the number of lies I wrote in the book. It wasn't actually that too bad. It wasn't actually too bad. He enjoyed the accusation in some ways. For all that, he was also extremely meticulous um, in recording the acuity of his eye, which was considerable. So he came out of the Sunday Times as a writer. Um, and it was as a writer, of course, that I was introduced to him. And uh, I, as I say, I visited in Patagonia. I started to work on it. I then left to help set up the London Review of Books, kept in touch with Bruce. And um, I'll round this off by saying that we did work together one other time, which was on his last book, or the last book published in his lifetime, which was Utz, um, which, of course, is a, again, written in contradistinction to the book that came before it, The Songlines, rambling, um, expansive, uh, outdoors, um, a great mythical, full of mythical explorations. Utz was tight, concerned with a um, an Eastern European collector, a collector of mice and porcelain, something that, that Bruce did know about, though he really didn't like it. It was absolutely opposed in many ways to his aesthetic, but he was very interested in Eastern Europe. And the the book was short, precise, exact, really needed very little work, but he had rung me up knowing that he was clearly ill and said he wanted me to edit it. Um, the editor he'd been working with in the last few books 
um, was not around for some reason. I can't remember what. And of course, so I went down to Homer End, the um, house that he lived in, painted in homage to his childhood uh, trip to Scandinavia in a dark maroon Swedish red with a sort of clinker-built house, very unusual in the middle of his green, rolling um, West Country landscape. And we went through the book. It needed very, very little. It was a question of punctuation, a question of little nips and tucks. But it, it was fun doing it because we'd worked together so much by then that he took a certain amount of delight in suddenly looking up at me and saying, I got there first. He knew the sort of the sorts of objections or, or qualifications that I was going to raise. And so we nipped and tucked and uh, made this exquisite, or he, I mean, he, he made the exquisite book, and I put in a little bit of punctuation and so on here and there. It was a strange period because soon after that, he became very inflamed by illness and became a sort of exaggerated version of his wildest self, spinning great projects for a major novel that would encompass what he said were four corrupt nations, France, the United States, England, and the former Soviet Union, all of which countries had greatly fascinated him, probably England least of all. That was one of them. Then he wanted, he suddenly said, I want to write a, to do a ballet about a, a knife grinder. And he sort of mimicked this knife grinding ballet. He wanted to do an opera um, in which there would be not a word of English, but would be a sort of babble of different um, other other tongues. And he started to buy extraordinary, extravagant items um, in from antique shops, things that he couldn't really afford. There was a madness in it um, because of his illness, but there was also something which was a sort of feverish version, version of Bruce. When he died, he he, he died abroad, um, but there was a memorial service in the Greek Orthodox Church in London, a place to which most of the people uh, attending the service would never have been. It was a very extraordinary like Bruce because there was no personal tribute and of course, he abstained from uh, personal confession in his books. Although actually, you'd have to say it was full, they were full obliquely of autobiographical information. You just heard the the priest intoning the words, and occasionally you heard the word Bruce ringing out. And what was also extraordinary was that it was the day that the fatwa was. Um, proclaimed on Salman Rushdie, and and Rushdie was there. So there was a strange mixture of celebrity, persecution, celebration, mournfulness, um, of a lot of British people gathered in a a foreign place. Um, You'd have to say it it was very chattering.
You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travel writing world. Thanks for your support. 